This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode of The Conspirators is brought to you by Audible.com. If you're like me, an imaginary spy on the run from fictional government agencies, you don't always have time to sit down and read a book. That's where Audible.com comes in. They have an enormous selection of audiobooks read by some of the best voice talent in the world. Everything, including science fiction, love stories, comedies, and my personal favorites, espionage, history, and murder mysteries. Over 180,000 titles available on your favorite audio device. Right now, you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash theconspirators. And now, on with the show. Less than a mile from the mainland in the Scottish Hebrides is a tiny oval-shaped island with a deadly history. In the mid-16th century, Grignard Island had a reputation as a hiding place for thieves and criminals. As the island is only a little more than a mile long and less than half as wide, it was never a great place for permanent habitation. So for the most part, people avoided it, with only sporadic attempts by anyone to actually try to live there. By the 1920s, the island was completely uninhabited which led the British government to choose it as the location for them to test some of the deadliest weapons known to man. During the height of World War II, having faced constant aerial attacks by the Germans during the Blitz, the British government became fearful that the Nazis would attack the UK with chemical or biological weapons. So they began to develop their own chemical weapons program as a possible preemptive strike. Scientists from the wartime think tank Porton Down began to test the potential for anthrax, a highly deadly bacillus strain that can kill quickly via skin contact, inhalation, or ingestion. They built a number of bombs laced with anthrax and chose Grignard Island as the place where they detonate them. They transported 80 sheep to the island under total secrecy, then set the bombs off near them to see what would happen. Within days, the animals began to die horribly. In 1997, the British government finally declassified the film footage of the dying animals. And I'm going to avoid descriptions of the deaths themselves. You can find the video online if you want to see for yourself what happened. I warn you though, don't eat lunch before viewing. What happened to those sheep proved to scientists that using anthrax as a weapon would undoubtedly be effective against humans. But it would also be completely impractical for warfare use. Anthrax would certainly kill any enemies who came into contact with the deadly contagion, but the resulting chemical fallout would also render cities uninhabitable for decades. Anthrax spores, as it turns out, are practically indestructible. And because of this, Grignard Island was put under strict quarantine for decades after. Stepping foot on Grignard Island without adequate protection was an almost certain death sentence. So for 40 years, Grignard Island was left alone and largely forgotten. This proved especially problematic because over the years that followed, anthrax-infected corpses would occasionally get swept out to sea and wash up on the Scottish mainland. The government would then swoop in, destroy the infected corpse, 
And of course, never mention the danger posed by the infected remains to anyone living in the surrounding area. Then in the mid-1980s, a mysterious group using the name Operation Dark Harvest decided enough was enough and began sending messages to the British government demanding that they do something about the island. The group claimed to be comprised of a team of concerned citizens and university microbiologists worried about the potential danger of having a tiny island so heavily contaminated with anthrax so close to Scottish shores, with no one doing anything about it to protect the public. So the group claimed they had secretly collected contaminated soil samples from the island and threatened to begin leaving them in places that would force the government to take action. In order to show authorities that they were serious, the group sent the Port and Downs Military Research Facility an anthrax-laced soil sample. Then another warning was left at the site of a major political convention in Blackpool. That was finally enough to spur the government to take action. In 1986, the British government began a full-scale decontamination of Grainyard Island, using a massive amount of formaldehyde. It took four years before scientists officially declared the island to be safe again, and although the British government eventually removed the quarantine signs and returned the island to its official legal heirs, not everyone is so sure it's completely safe. Anthrax is a remarkably resilient organism, and some scientists have speculated about mutations that may have occurred that might have allowed it to survive decontamination. I don't know about you, but just in case, I'm not planning my next vacation for a trip to Greenyard Island anytime soon. Although there's no accurate count, estimates claim there's something in the ballpark of 100,000 islands scattered around the globe. Throughout history, islands have often been used as places where secrets could be hidden from prying eyes. Books and movies have often given us the false impression that most islands are tropical paradises where pirates bury treasure and castaways learn to live a hard-scrabble existence while they await rescue from passing ships. But many islands are inhospitable places, where the only secrets they hide is death and human misery. I'm Nate Hale, broadcasting to you from my own remote island retreat using a microphone I built out of coconuts. And this is The Conspirators. Tiburon Island is the largest of Mexico's islands, and at times of low tide it actually turns into a peninsula of sorts, when it becomes attached to the mainland by a narrow strip of land. For many years throughout the 19th and 20th centuries there were two outstanding legends about Tiburon Island. One, that it was full of gold, and two, that it was full of cannibals. For generations the island's primary inhabitants were a tribe of nomadic Indians known as the Siri, the Siri were notably primitive in many respects, and even by the early 20th century they were known to not use fire, and would eat their meat raw. They also had a reputation for being particularly unfriendly toward outsiders, and were often known to greet people with a hail of arrows. Throughout the 1820s, explorer Lieutenant Robert William Hale Hardy made numerous trips to Tiburon Island looking for gold. But instead of finding great fortune, he kept encountering the Siri tribe, who he found to be a brave but ferocious people, not to be taken for granted. Hardy approached the tribe cautiously and brought gifts and medical assistance to them. As a result, Hardy was welcomed by them and eventually allowed to leave in one piece. In 
But although Hardy would tell people that the Siri were not to be feared, just as long as you treated them with the proper respect, they nonetheless developed a reputation as a group of bloodthirsty savages. By the 1890s, the relationship between the Siri people and the Mexican government had deteriorated badly. And although there may have been as many as 5,000 Siri when Robert Hardy met them, by the 1890s the ravages of disease and government-ordered extermination had driven their numbers down to around 200. In order to survive, the Siri had to turn to eating the Mexican cattle and horses that wandered into their homeland. But at the same time, another rumor began to circulate about the Siri that painted them in an even more gruesome and vicious light. Some people began to claim that the Siri weren't limiting themselves to just eating cows and horses to survive, and that now they were eating people. All these stories were spurred on in the late 19th and early 20th centuries by a few isolated incidents of people who went to Tiburon Island who were never heard from again. According to conflicting sources, sometime between 1894 and 1896, an American reporter named R.E.L. Robinson went to Tiburon Island to collect stories about the fearsome natives. He was never heard from again. This story was complicated by the fact that before Robinson left, he asked an Associated Press correspondent to publish a story pronouncing him dead, so that readers would believe he was killed by natives, making it even more dramatic when he made his sudden reappearance. It appears Robinson got his wish, at least sort of. He hired the owner of a small sloop to sail him over to the island. But soon after they made shore, the boatman claimed to have heard a pistol shot, and then witnessed Robinson getting struck down by a shower of rocks and arrows. The boatman only narrowly escaped himself after that. Sometime around 1897, Captain George Porter, who had participated in a number of historical expeditions throughout the waters near Lower California, disappeared after sailing his boat to Tiburon Island looking for seashells and other curios. The Mexican army later conducted a search of the island, but all they found was a single shoe, the remains of a campfire, and a broken post from the man's boat. The Mexican soldiers reported that the Siri had most likely killed Captain Porter, then cooked his body over a fire made from the wood of his boat. There's no real evidence that this is what really occurred, and considering the Siri were known to eat their meat raw, it's difficult to prove this was what really happened. But the official story stuck and only helped confirm what most of the public already believed about the Siri. Then a few years later, a pair of Yaqui renegades fled to Tiburon Island. The government of Sonora sent a message to the Siri asking for their help, although that seems to have only led to more confusion. Bring in the Yaquis with their hands tied to a pole and you will receive a reward, is what the message read. But the Siri tribe didn't speak Spanish, so the messenger had to rely on sign language to communicate. Not long after, a group of Siri women traveled to the town of Hermosilla with eight bloody Yaqui hands tied to a pole topped with a straw hat. This was enough to convince the governor that the Siri were dangerous savages, and he sent another squad of soldiers to the island to wipe them out. The soldiers did their job and many Siri died, although even after the attack a few members of the tribe still remained and continued living on the island into the 1920s. In 1905, three members of a small gold prospecting expedition in the Sonoran Desert, near Teberone Island, met with tragedy there. The entire expedition consisted of four Americans and one Papago guide. The leader of the expedition was a former Arizona schoolteacher 
and Arizona Supreme Court law clerk named Thomas Grindel. The other members of the group were G. Olin Rawls, Jack Hoffman, David Ingram, and guide Dolores Valenzuela. Back in 1898, Grindel had once served as a sergeant in Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War. He had briefly visited Tiburon Island in 1903 and 1904, and upon his return he had reported to an Arizona newspaper that the rumors about the natives were unfounded and that they were the most peaceable people he had ever met. You can tell from the account that Grindel felt a little sorry for the Siri, thinking of them as a primitive tribe who had been misunderstood by outsiders and gotten an undeserved bad reputation. Grindel led the expedition in the summer of 1905. They stored all their water in five-gallon oil cans which were attached to the team's donkeys. They also brought a small still with them to purify seawater, but the device never worked properly. Things went badly early on and, according to Hoffman, the team made slow progress. By the time they reached the coast, they were already nearly out of water. To make matters even worse, their guide refused to go any further. And although they had expected to cross the narrow strait connecting the island to the mainland, they found the path to be nearly impassable. From there, the group attempted to find a cattle ranch they'd heard about in the area, but their map was inaccurate, which only served to get them even more lost. Eventually, the members of the group became separated. Only Jack Hoffman survived by eating edible plants he found along his journey and distilling water himself whenever he could. When he finally reached safety on November 5, 1905, Hoffman discovered that he had been walking alone in the desert for four months, and that he had walked for over 150 miles from Tiburon to an area near the Guaymas, crossing desert, swamp, and mountains along the way. On September 1st, having heard no word from the expedition, Thomas Grindel's brother Edward began searching for the other missing men. During his initial search, Edward heard a disturbing story from some Papago hunters about what might have happened to his brother and the other men. The hunters told Edward that they had found a place on the island where a group of Americans had been killed and eaten by the natives. Nothing was left of the men but their hands, which were nailed to a plank stuck into the ground. Grindel wasn't sure if he should believe the story or not. He'd of course heard the terrible rumors about the Siri tribe, but he'd also heard his own brother refuting those rumors. Another potential suspect behind his brother's disappearance was the expedition's guide, Dolores Valenzuela. Remember, the guide claimed he had deserted the group when they got too close to the island. People began to tell Edward that Valenzuela was a bad Indian and not to be trusted. A local vaquero told Edward that Valenzuela was actually a deserter from the Mexican army and that he had once attempted to kill a local cattleman. Edward tried reporting his suspicions to the local governor, but the governor told him there was nothing else that could be done. Edward was about ready to give up his search and return to Arizona, when he ran into Valenzuela walking through Hermosilla. Valenzuela told Edward he'd been looking for him, and he wanted to help find his brother. Edward decided to give the search another go. He hired a dozen men, and set out on one more trip into the desert. They followed the Sonora River to the coast, then turned north and headed in the direction Valenzuela said he'd led them. A week later, in a place called Coyote Springs, they picked up the expedition's trail once again. They eventually found their way to a Siri camp, and there, Edward claimed, he found a disturbing scene much like the one the hunters had described to him weeks earlier. There were a pair of dance rings marked in the earth, one inside the other. At one side, about a foot away from the edge of the outer ring, 
was a wooden plank planted in the soil. Nailed to the plank crosswise was a long stick, and at each end of the stick hung a severed human hand, tied there by the leather straps from a camera case. On the inside of the leather straps they could still make out some of the letters from the owner's name, a capital M, a small E, and an R. Grindel believed the severed hands and the straps from the camera case belonged to two Los Angeles miners named Harry E. Miller and Gus Olander, who had gone missing from the area in January 1905. The search party continued further and found the remains of several abandoned camps from the expedition, but no sign of the missing men themselves, or even any Siri natives. In some cases, they found fresh Siri tracks that appeared to be following the expedition's path. The Papago hunters Edward Grindel hired believed the Siri had killed his brother and the others. When their own supplies began to run low, the hunters convinced Edward to turn back and go to Hermosillo, where they could regroup and organize a new search party. But when the new search party returned to the area days later, rain swept through the desert, washing away all the tracks. They did locate one of the expedition's dead mules, with a rifle and bucket still attached to the saddle which only confirmed in Edward's mind that his brother had perished. Edward Grindel eventually left Mexico without finding his brother or the other men. He wrote a letter expressing his frustration to the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Robert Bacon, in which he described his belief that his brother and the others had likely died of dehydration. It wasn't until a full year later in December 1906 when a group of prospectors discovered the skeletal remains of Thomas Grindel and the other men. The skeletons didn't lend any specific clues as to the cause of death. Although most people presumed the men had died of thirst. There's no evidence that the men were the victims of cannibalism. The truth about the Siri tribe is there's a lot we don't know about them. Living in the desert is difficult enough on its own. But adding in the pressures of the outside world, as well as the constant threat of starvation. Were they driven to eating other humans as a means to survive? We just don't know. There is a curious story, though, about the Siri that came out nearly 50 years later when another expedition visited the island in order to get to the bottom of all the rumors. One of the members of the expedition located a Siri tribesman and asked him if there was any truth to the rumors about cannibalism. The tribesman smiled grimly and replied, Well, we like the flavor better than most game. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. It's difficult for most of us to consider the circumstances that might drive a group of civilized people to break what is considered by most to be the ultimate taboo, cannibalism. 
That's how most of us like to think of ourselves, as civilized creatures, cultured and sophisticated, far removed from beasts. It's easy to lose sight of the realization that we ourselves are animals, and under the right circumstances, we can all be driven to commit unspeakable acts. Back in 1933, officials in the Soviet Union came up with a plan to deal with two million of society's undesirables. Most of those people were homeless beggars, petty criminals, gypsies, and the mentally ill. Basically anyone who didn't fit into the ideals of the ruling communist class under Joseph Stalin. For some people, failing to get a proper internal passport was enough to get you included on the list. Genrik Yagoda, the head of the Soviet secret police force, came up with a plan to round up these two million individuals and ship them off to the desolate wastelands of Siberia and Kazakhstan, where they would reside in the newly formed gulags to the north. The idea was that these undesirables would populate and tame the wild country, creating their own self-sustaining society far away from the more civilized cities to the south. By April of 1933, 25,000 people had already been rounded up and loaded into cramped trains headed for the frigid wastelands. It was a harrowing trip with little food or water provided to the prisoners, which caused the rise of gangs who beat and killed other prisoners for their rations and belongings. They were scheduled to make a stop at a transit camp in the city of Tomsk, but the train arrived before schedule and the camp wasn't prepared with adequate food or medical supplies for the glut of prisoners. As a result, many prisoners died on the ride to the camp, and even more perished once they were inside the camp's fences. It turns out those people were probably the lucky ones, though, considering what happened next. In an effort to take the pressure off the limited resources available in the overcrowded camp, 6,000 of the prisoners were selected to be moved to another temporary camp until the authorities could decide what to do with them. Four river barges were used as transports to take the freezing, starving prisoners to a tiny speck of land upriver called Nazino Island. Conditions aboard the barges were even worse than they were on the trains. Prisoners were kept below decks to wallow in their own filth. There were only tiny rations of rotten bread to go around. There was almost no food, no warm clothing, no cooking utensils, and almost no water. Most of the guards were new on the job and didn't have proper uniforms themselves. Some of them didn't even have shoes. By the time the barges reached Nazino Island, 27 of the prisoners were already dead. Nearly a third of the remaining prisoners were so weak they could barely stand by the time they reached shore. It didn't take long for the prisoners to realize their situation had just gone from bad to worse. Nazino Island is about 3 kilometers long by 600 meters wide, and it has no natural food sources or shelter. There are a few worse places that I can imagine to be abandoned to survive than Nazino Island. 300 more prisoners froze to death the very first night as a terrible snowstorm struck. A handful of guards were left behind to maintain order, and they were in nearly as dire straits as the prisoners. The only food the prisoners were provided were 20 tons of moldy flour that was dumped on the shores the following morning to be divided evenly among them. Things erupted into chaos immediately when the starving prisoners stampeded for something to eat. Fistfights and rioting broke out. Many people were trampled underfoot. The panicked guards fired into the crowd to try to break things up, killing and wounding several more people. Since there were no ovens or cooking utensils, and almost no fresh water, making bread was an impossibility. Most people had to resort to mixing the flour with brackish river water and consuming it raw, leading to rampant dysentery and typhoid. 
Some people crafted makeshift rafts and tried to escape on the river. Many of them were shot by the guards, although the few who managed to escape couldn't have fared any better. They were hundreds of miles away from the nearest city, and most of the surrounding area was wilderness. Anyone who made it to shore would have almost certainly frozen to death before finding civilization. Within days of arriving on Nazino Island, more and more people began dying. Most of the bodies were just left out in the open. It wasn't long before the starving prisoners began to look at those corpses as their only available source of food. Once people began to cross that line, it didn't take long for some of them to take things even one step further and began to murder the living as well. Gangs of people crazed from hunger began preying on the weakest members of the group. A common tactic known as bleeding the cow began where a group of prisoners would lure in an unsuspecting victim by claiming they were going to make an escape attempt, then surrounding the victim and slaying him or her. The few guards who remained on the island were no help in maintaining order. They were starving as well and barely distinguishable from the prisoners they were there to watch over. Many years later, a woman in her 80s who had survived the ordeal and arrived in the island as a 13-year-old girl described it as something out of our worst nightmares. The fields were littered with human corpses. Anywhere you went across the island, you could find pieces of human flesh that had been cut up and hung in the trees. If there's ever been a hell on earth, then it was certainly represented there on Nazino Island. Remarkably, the Soviet government either didn't know or didn't care about what was happening on the island, and they continued to send shipments of prisoners there. When a ship arrived on shore containing an additional 1,200 people, the dazed and starving prisoners had no sooner set foot on land when they were immediately attacked by a swarm of marauders looking for fresh meat. Eventually, the Soviet authorities began to worry that some of the cannibalistic prisoners might manage to escape the island and find their way to a remote village. They finally sent reinforcements to the island to gain control of the situation. Dozens of prisoners were arrested for cannibalism, but by then it was already too late. Only a month after they had been sent there, it's estimated that around 4,000 of the original 6,000 prisoners were dead, many of them violently. The Communist Party government launched an investigation into what went wrong on Nazino Island. The report was immediately buried and remained under wraps until 1988 when the rumors began to leak out about the atrocities that occurred. It wasn't until 2002 when the Russian government finally released the official report from 1933, confirming the stories about the atrocities that happened there. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks as always for listening, and just a reminder that you can help us out by signing up for a 30-day free trial of Audible.com at www.audibletrial.com slash theconspirators. Just for signing up, you'll get a free audiobook download that's yours to keep. You can also help us out by subscribing to the show on iTunes and leaving us a positive review. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again.